Kia ora everyone, I'm Andrew Whiteside and today I'm talking with Andrew Reynolds about his beautiful new book, The Children of Harvey Milk. It's an impressive piece of work that tells the stories of queer activists around the world who've made a difference both within their own communities and far beyond. Andy Reynolds, wonderful to meet you and this quite extraordinary book that you have written, The Children of Harvey Milk. Let's get straight into it. Why did you want to do this book? Why is it important? Well, as an academic, I'm really interested in uh, how politics changes by individuals being at the table. And historically, we've had quite a lot of evidence about women being at the table and how that matters. And to some extent, minorities in the States, African-Americans, Latinos at the table. How does that matter? But we didn't really have a good feel for the impact of the openly gay or lesbian or bisexual or trans politician being at the table. How did that change the minds of the people around them? And how did it change the hearts and the values of the electorate that vote for them? So there seemed to be this big gap in our knowledge about the representation of LGBTQ people, how they got there, and the effect on politics once they were there. Now you're an academic, so presumably you've written lots of papers. This book does not read like that. This book reads like a story, and it's full of emotion. Yeah, it's, uh, this is my 12th book, and uh, the 11 before were certainly much more tedious and academic. But in some ways, I knew that this had to be a book about how society changes. And in the gay rights field, society seems to change through um, visceral connections. Your daughter, your son, your friend, your um, colleague who happens to be queer. Um, And so our political changes are driven very much by those narrative stories. They're quite emotional. Uh, And so I knew the book needed to be more of a narrative. And in a way, it's set up like a will-they-win-the-tournament book. I have my characters. My characters are jumping over huge hurdles, but we don't know if they're going to win or lose, ultimately. And I wanted the, the book to read like a narrative of a sports team, of an athlete who was challenged by so many things, and you are invested in if they win or lose. And some of my characters win, some of them lose, but ultimately I'd say everybody wins because they're moving the needle on views of LGBT people. So at the heart of it is visibility, and I guess that is what um, the milk principle was about, this sense of if you tell real stories, if you actually show genuine people, you're going to get beyond the stereotypes. Yeah. I mean, Harvey Milk, as you know, wasn't the first openly gay man elected. He wasn't even the first openly gay man elected in the United States. But what he was, was the first person who really gripped on to this philosophy of, I need to be visible, run for office, to dispel the notions and the preconceived prejudices about gay people that we are perverts, we are miscreants, we are deviants. He said, you've got to embrace your identity, not let it define you, but actually be at the table so the straights can see that you are as human and as worthy and as flawed as everybody else. And I just want to quote something from from the book, page 10, I think. 
What changes society are names and faces and the stories of real people with eyes you can look into and feelings you can empathize with. I'm, I'm getting goosebumps as I read that because it is so true. And it's the, it's the essence of every story that you're, you tell in this book. Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing about the book, which is pretty global and touches from Africa to Latin America to the South Pacific um, to Europe as well, is that while the stories are very different in their context of the politician in Britain or the politician in New Zealand or in Africa, the similarities of the nature, the tone of that story are very similar, that people gain the courage to put themselves out in public as a gay or lesbian or trans person, and they fight for legitimacy, and then their ultimate embrace by society then open up the doors to many other generations beyond them. So the fascinating thing for me was that I'm telling a hundred stories that are the same over and over again, but they're fascinating because they are articulated in different places, different times. Um, and I think uh, one of the most powerful things to me is that it reinforces the notion that we do nil, still need as a community to be visible, that many of the battles are not done, that many of the gains are not entirely unthreatened. And so coming out, being visible, um, being authentic, still has a huge primacy in our society. I guess you could apply that to any form of prejudice though, couldn't you? That, you... that connections and identifying beyond the surface yeah. is important. So that's certainly true, but I think there's a little tweak to this. I mean, where I live and where I'm from, I'm from Britain, I live in the United States. Let's think about race and ethnicity as a marginalized groups. So Afro-Caribbeans or South Asians in Britain, Latinos or Native Americans or African Americans in America. The thing about their minority status was that they were discriminated against and still are, but you know where, they're, where they are. And you can pretty much say, oh yes, that's a black person or that's a person of South Asian origin. You know them, you see them. The thing about queer people, as we know, is that they are scattered. The good Lord spreads her talents randomly across society, rich and poor, young and old. Sexual orientation is not correlated with ethnicity or race or wealth. So when people are in the closet, they're hiding for good reason. And today, this would be the case with trans people. We don't know where, are, where they are. We don't have that visibility. And so I think when gay people start to come out in public life and in private life, they suddenly become your uncle, your child, your close friend at work. And that is a more powerful punch to the system than getting empathy for a minority group that you know where they live, they live the other side of the tracks, but you've always, always known they were there. So that's why I think there's a little bit more weight coming out for gay people. So obviously visibility is, is so important. In terms of the countries that have successfully changed their laws and changed attitudes, what else goes into the mix that, to lead to that, that change? I think, um, you know, like any big social changes, you've got a, a sort of pincer movement of different forces coming together at the same time. So you've got your social activist movements, 
Um, somebody like Peter Tatchell is outside of politics, um, outside of electoral politics, but in the activist world. So he is probing, pushing, making people rethink their preconceived notions, um, gathering public support. And that's one push from one side, an outsider side. And then you have in the media, the, 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 the movies, the soap operas, the visible representations of gay people as regular people in the entertainment that we watch. When Michael Cashman kissed a man for the first time on EastEnders, a British soap, that was a dramatic change in the psychology of British people. They saw that for the first time. And then you have the insiders, the Louisa Walls, the um, Georgina Bayers, the politicians who are inside parliaments or inside government offices. And I think they come together and they're all working for the same goal from different positions. Um, now, sometimes wealth, uh, better development standards help. Uh, a larger educated middle class helps. But ultimately, this is not just about the economy. Um, it's about people's heartfelt views of the other. Frankly, it's also about declining religiosity. I was going to ask you about that, about whether secularism plays a role. I think it clearly does, in the sense that there are many religions and religious dimensions that I embrace queer people today. Um, much of the world, um, you can be gay and a lesbian and trans and be embraced by your church or your mosque or wherever else. But there's still large parts of religion, certainly the African and the uh, Caribbean part of the Anglican Church, Russian Orthodox, um, and in some parts of the world, the Catholic Church, that are still drivers of homophobia. And I look at, say, the South Pacific and I look at Africa and see the British and the Anglican Church exporting historically homophobia, not exporting homosexuality. Homosexuals went in Africa for centuries. Yeah. What Britain does through the Church of England is export homophobia. And frankly, the Anglican Church in Britain and in Australia and New Zealand and in America has largely evolved away from that, but it's stuck. It's stuck in the 1800s, the 1900s in Africa and in the Caribbean. The Methodists, the Baptists, um, the Episcopalians, those are the people who are still driving blocks on equality laws. I wonder too if there's elements of sexism in this as well, because um, of people, and they don't necessarily have to be religious, but it can, <clears throat> excuse me, it can go with conservatism, that the roles of what a man and a woman should be, according to a conservative view of those roles, and that um, homosexuality and trans, uh, transgender issues actually put a mirror up to that. I, that's certainly true because um, if you think about um, parents, gay parents, uh, lesbian and gay, lesbians and gay men being parents, then sometimes the criticism is that um, you need this male dominant figure and subservient wife in a, uh, in a nuclear family unit and um, you need natural childbirth in effect 
not adoption, not surrogacy, to produce a godly family. So there's a high degree of sexism there. And when you come to trans or non-binary people or gender non-conforming people, again, that's a real challenge to the classical conservative biblical idea of the family and the person and the relationships between genders. Because if you start playing with gender binaries, you're playing with the set order of power. So I agree with you. Um, I just want to return to the book, and obviously you have um, stories from different parts of the world, very different people. But if you were to look at maybe the essential qualities of all those stories and the people in them, what, what do you think is common to all of them? I think one of the things that is common is tenacity and courage um, in the face of pretty overwhelming odds. So if I'm talking about the um, closeted Ugandan, I'm sorry, um, African MP that I mentioned anonymously in the book, if I'm talking about uh, politicians in Ireland, David Norris perhaps, or if I'm talking about Americans like Barney Frank, their tenacity in the face of pretty extreme hatred, Peter Tatchell as well, is, is quite remarkable. So these are individuals who demonstrate a capacity to endure a lot of public vilification. And the other theme that runs through is, I think, their ultimate embrace by mainstream society. One of the things that I find a little ironic is that Peter Tatchell, the Australian-British um, uh, advocate for human rights and queer rights, was vilified 40 years ago as the most outlandish extremist. And over 40 years, the mainstream has come to him. <laughs> yes. People actually see him as, you know, slightly out of left field, but a good man who believes in human rights. And why did we ever criticize his demand for equality, which 40 years ago was penalized by Margaret Thatcher as being abhorrent, and Nigel Tebbit as being abhorrent. But now the mainstream has come towards these people, it's which quite... is an encouraging thing. So chapter one, you start the book looking at uh, the moment when New Zealand passed the um, its equal uh, marriage equality act, rather. Uh, I got the impression that that was quite an emotional moment for you, even in writing it. So I wanted to know why that was the first reference and what it meant to you. It was emotional and it was very deliberately at the start of the book because I thought that moment of the bill passing, and I think I even remember the words that it was the eyes of 77, the nays of 44, and then the gallery breaking into this Maori love song. And Louisa Wall, the champion of that bill, standing there in the well of parliament, being given flowers by her colleagues across all the sides of parliament. And the song, a very beautiful and well-rendered song from the gallery that isn't supposed to be speaking, but is singing about love, just captured for me the beauty of embracing love if it's same sex and how important that is to people and how symbolic that is to people. And I just felt that that moment was really an avatar for what this means. It was a country saying, this is who we are now. 
We want to say to our queer sons and daughters who had to leave in the 50s, come home. We love you now. And this is happening in Ireland as well. It's a very emotional thing. It's like the country is a family and the family is apologizing for its past. And I actually had this amazing experience where I was on my British Isles book tour and Louisa Wall was with me. We did our event in Edinburgh and Louisa and I, at the end of the meeting, sang Pokarakara Ani Anna together. And after watching that years before, having never met her and being really touched and not writing the book because of that, but certainly feeling that was the start of the book to actually get to sing it with her. And we're going to sing it again at Parliament um, tomorrow with all the MPs that are joining us who've been elected as out MPs. Um, it's an important symbol. Lastly, I just wanted to know from a personal perspective from you, has the book changed you? How has it impacted on you? I mean, I think it's interesting because I'm so uh, surrounded by conversations about what is queer, what is queer politics, what are the dimensions. I'm a bisexual man and that is an interesting animal at any time because the bees of the LGBTQs have historically sat in the corner at the kids' table and they get to listen and watch, but they don't really get to have a say at the big grown-up table. You know, the lesbians and the gay men are at the grown-up table. The teas used to serve the food, but now they're inside sitting <laughs> at the grown-up table. But I'm, and the other bees are still sitting at the kids' table. As an observer, that's a good place to be. I'm not expected to take a lead, but I'm, I'm allowed to listen. I'm in the room. But it's also interesting, and I feel like I am understanding more my place within the movement, the bisexual nature of sexuality and sexual orientation and fluidity and where that is. Um, and I, myself, have spoken more about my sexual orientation um, over the last few years writing this book more than ever before. So it's an exploration for me. The book, in a way, is a way to allow me to talk to people openly because biphobia and bi people being in the closet are as common as gay and homophobia and gay people in the closet. Absolutely. So I think it's an interesting experience for me and an opportunity to learn more about myself. That was Andrew Reynolds, the author of The Children of Harvey Milk. It's a beautifully written book and I urge you to buy a copy. Uh, I've always thought it's important that queer history and culture is celebrated and uh, this book does just that. I'm Andrew Whiteside. Thank you for listening and please, if you like this interview, share it. Bye for now.